Hey, Julia, what do you have there? This is my absentee ballot. We've got a judicial election coming up next week in Wisconsin. And uh, you see me signing it right now? Mm-hmm. That's good because I need you to sign that you uh, witnessed me signing the outside of my ballot here. Uh, write your address right okay. there. Right here? Yep. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, we've got this uh, very complicated uh, situation with these paper ballots we have to mail in in Wisconsin. Every state is different. Every time I vote, it seems like the rules are a little bit different. It's very confusing. Federalism. Elections. These are some of the topics we will be covering today. Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about why our political institutions are failing and ideas for fixing them. In each episode, we'll talk through a proposal for reform, sharing what we know and what we don't know. We'll try to question our own assumptions about how politics works and get beyond the red versus blue and into truly big ideas. I'm Julia Azari, Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University. I'm Lee Drutman, Senior Fellow at New America. And I'm James Walner, Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute. Today we're going to talk about getting rid of the Electoral College. This has been in the news. It's been in the news all the time, but it's been in the news in the last week or so because of uh, some statements by Elizabeth Warren. She would support eliminating it. It's been obviously something people have talked about since the 2016 election when Donald Trump lost the popular vote um, but won the presidency. So we are going to have a lively, spirited, maybe civil debate about that today. And for all of you concerned parents out there, you know, we're going to explore how to get your kids selected as electors. Don't worry. It can be done. But I'm going to warn you, it's going to cost you a lot of money. And particularly if they want to be electors, they should get on the fencing team now. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great way to get into the, the Electoral College. Very, oh, very selective. I'm very uh, proud of you all with these uh, timely uh, <laughs> pop culture jokes. We did a pop culture. Don't ask us yeah, to do it again. Pop up, pop up culture. <sighs> oh, well, the Electoral College, is, it's, it's kind of a bizarre institution. Right? I mean, no other country in the world is anything like it. It's like this weird 18th century vestige that's still with us. But is it just a problem from 2016? Uh, well, it was 1824 was a problem, 1876, 1888, 2000. I mean, it's it's like perpetually been a problem. Would you define those as a problem? Let's let's revisit that. Let's circle back, as the kids say, to this question of when has it been a problem? How do we define problem and what happened in all of these years that, that leaves uh, throwing out? Um, I think where we want to actually start out, so we kind of talked about why it's been in the news and why people have been talking about it. Um, I want to kind of throw out, first of all, a couple of things about how we would change the Electoral College. So just, you know, as we all know, the Electoral College allocates a certain number of votes to each state, and every state except Maine and Nebraska gives those out on a winner-take-all basis. So you win popular vote in a given state, you win all the Electoral College votes. Um, so let's talk through a couple of the proposals to change that. The most extreme, I like to start with the most extreme, is a constitutional amendment that would change the presidential election to a popular vote. Yeah, but that's a really high hurdle. Right. The Constitution requires a two-thirds vote in the House and the Senate to propose amendments to the states. That's 67 in the Senate, and I think my math may be off, but 290 in the House, And then if all seats are occupied. And it has to be ratified by the legislatures in three-fourths of the states. Or, alternatively, you can have a con-con, a constitutional amendment uh, that's called by two-thirds of the states, and then it proposes amendments, and those amendments must be ratified subsequently 
by three-fourths of the state. So that's, that's a really high hurdle. It's been one of the most popular um, constitutional amendments to be proposed, at least informally in Congress, uh, since like eight, from 1800 through the middle of the 20th century. But it's never really gotten anywhere, precisely because it's such a high hurdle. Yeah, I mean, it really, it really is. It's not super likely to happen, but that's obviously the most concrete way to fundamentally shift the institution. And then we've got the National Popular Vote Compact. Colorado has recently signed on to that. Yeah, so that's sort of a workaround, right? The Constitution says that states can decide to allocate their electors however they want. So you've got a bunch of states now, 13, um, with 181 electoral votes that have said, well, all our electors will, will go to the candidate who wins the most votes nationwide. And if you get to over 270, then effectively that that is a popular vote. Now, uh, all the states that have, have signed on are obviously all Democratic states, because I think the conventional wisdom at this point is that Democrats are kind of disadvantaged by the Electoral College, although who knows that, that, that could shift. I mean, going into 2016, a lot of people thought Democrats had an unfair advantage. They had a blue wall, which obviously cracked. Um, but, you know, I think if we get to the point where you have 270 plus electoral votes on onto this compact, then you have a nationwide consensus that the Electoral College is bad. And then you could actually get to a constitutional amendment. Because I could see if, if this shifts the other way and starts to be the conventional wisdom that the Electoral College helps Democrats, then all these states, I'm sure, will, will pull back and, and, and pull out of this compact. So It's kind of tricky right now to be thinking about Electoral College reform specifically because it's so deeply polarized and such a – politics is not only deeply polarized but closely polarized. So it's such a zero-sum game. Um, it's hard to think about institutional reform. It's hard for elites in particular to think about institutional reforms, I think, in ways that – that transcend their their partisan interests. So, you know, I, I also thought through in the lowest disruption kinds of reforms. I remember people talking a little bit about these after the 2000 election, where more states would adopt the kind of main Nebraska model, where either these votes are allocated proportionally based on the total state vote, or as those states have, you have a kind of allocation based on congressional district. Um, so it's not winner take all at the state level. Nate Cohen had a really interesting article in the New York Times this week on this uh, phenomenon of winner-take-all elections in the states and how that is really the source of the, of the kind of distortion between the popular vote and the electoral college outcome. Um, and it's actually interesting if you look into the history. The Constitution doesn't require it to be winner-take-all. And if you look at the way it was originally set up by the states, it wasn't just Nebraska and Maine. Well, obviously, because they weren't part of the original 13, right? But all the states used the district method. And it was only over time where the states shifted towards a winner-take-all. And a little bit of history, in the 1800 election, you had some Federalists who wanted to reduce the support of the Jeffersonian Republicans in their states. And so they went to a winner-take-all system. Jefferson and, and his crowd tried to propose a constitutional amendment. It wasn't going to be successful. So they, in turn, switched to a winner-take-all system. And so after that kind of election, you have winner-take-all that kind of takes off, and it's now kind of rooted mm -hmm. in our political culture. But it's not required by the Constitution. The states can change that, as Maine and Nebraska have done. You know, that's really an important observation. The 1800 observation is a good one, too, because there is so much both eventually constitutional, but also extra constitutional change that came out of this election where you have the sort of deeply contested, um, weakly institutionalized parties, deep what we would now call partisanship going on at that time. So I think there's actually a lot of lessons for 1800. Maybe we'll do like a little sidecar podcast about that. Yeah. So one of the things I thought 
we kind of start with before we really delve into some of the arguments that have been thrown out and, and the questions we have is at least I want to disclose my priors on the Electoral College, which is that I've long been a defender on a couple grounds. One that uh, I am kind of sympathetic to the campaign argument that it forces people to campaign in different parts of the country, but mainly it, I'm very skeptical of reforms that are um, that are plebiscitary, that have pushed more decisions into the hands of, of a sort of raw electorate, and particularly the campaign finance implications of those. Like, what would the system be like if you have an incentive to spend just a little more money in different parts of the country to get more votes out? But I've really changed my mind because of the level of distortion in 2016 and kind of coming around to how important popular votes are for legitimacy. So I'm in sort of a weird transitional place with the with the Electoral College, where I will admit I've recently changed my mind. Well, the campaign finance argument is interesting, right? I mean, because if you're only campaigning in six states, it's less expensive than campaigning everywhere. So, I mean, it, yeah. I mean, if there's already too much money in politics, imagine how much money you'd have at a, at a nationwide well, That's level. a much better way of saying what I was trying to say. Yeah, I'm nodding vigorously at Lee, which doesn't happen that often. So, Well, I'm not sure. It. I mean, I think the consultants probably can figure out how to spend $500 million <laughs> in Alabama. Don't, let's, not, let's not sell them short. You know, these are talented people. They can figure it out. Oh, fair. Buy all of the ads. Right. All the time. So I don't know if anyone else wants to disclose. Uh, yeah, no, I— uh, I tend to be sympathetic to um, keeping things as they are until there's an, a, a very obvious reason for reform. But I've entered this stage in life where I'm questioning everything. I'm questioning everything, all of my priors, questioning other people's arguments, because I've found increasingly there's this disconnect between how we think about politics and the reality that is politics. And I think that also exists within this electoral college debate. So I'm looking forward to this. I think it's going to be exciting. I'm ready to go. I mean, I, I've always thought the electoral college is a Bizarre cockamamie institution. Well, of course you did. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's a vestige of a of a time when you know, I mean, they, you know, summer of seventeen eighty seven. It's getting hot and sweaty. Let's let's wrap this constitutional convention up. We can't agree. Do we want? Do we want popular democracy? Do we want elite democracy? I don't know. How about the electoral college? Okay, so okay, Lee, since you're you're the skeptic, you're the wide eyed idealist here. Um, why don't you start us out with what you know? Lay out the arguments against the electoral man, college. Why do you hate it? One person, one vote, man. Why are you such a hater. Um, <laughs> I mean, democracy. Every vote should count equally, right? I mean, that's like a basic principle. I mean, if we set up a system in which we randomly assigned people and only one out of six people got a vote that was potentially decisive, what would we think of that? We wouldn't call that a democracy. And do, then, do people's votes not count the same? I mean, not if you're not in a swing state. You're, you have no chance of, of having uh, de- casting a decisive vote. But if you are in a swing state, your vote counts the same as everybody else in that state, if does it not? If, I'm sorry, I'm talking over people here. But if you are in a swing state, you still have no chance of casting well, a decisive okay. vote. Like, N- nobody should vote. <laughs> and nothing right, matters. Yeah. But, I mean, seriously, if you really start thinking about voting right. that way, it gets very nihilistic very quickly. But this is an important point, I think, that Lee's making here, which is it's the question of what is the electorate? And we think about our politics in terms of a national electorate. But in reality, and while we may have a natural, national electorate symbolically or culturally, in reality, there is no national electorate. There, there's the electorate as it exists in each state. And the people have equal votes 
but their votes are contained in the states. And this isn't just me saying this. I mean, John Marshall says this in McCulloch v. Maryland. He says, it is true they assembled in their several states. Speaking about ratification, he says, and where else should they have assembled? No political dreamer was ever wild enough to think of breaking down the lines which separate the states and of compounding the American people into one common mass. So of consequence, when they act, they act in their states. So I may be in Georgia. I have one vote just like everybody else in Georgia. I may be in California. I have one vote, just like everybody else in California. And to get beyond that, we have to think about a different electorate. See, here's my rebuttal to that. Either that's wrong or the the conclusions that emanate from that premise are wrong. So That's why I quoted Marshall. Uh, so you what? can disagree with him. <laughs> that's fine. I don't care. Um, I'm happy to disagree with whoever you're quoting. So either we're all a national electorate, which is essentially what Lee is saying, right? That we are all, and I think there's, you know, there's a constitutional kind of argument for that. I think the 14th Amendment is one area where, one part of the Constitution where you would draw on that. I think there's also, you know, there's recent empirical political science research about the nationalization of the electorate. Um, There's even stuff, people who write on the 19th century in our discipline and in history have, have sort of embraced the the extent to which the polity was national and the questions were national even in the early republic. So I think on the one hand, maybe that's not true. On the other hand, if that is true, and living in different states gives us meaningfully different identities, that actually makes a more powerful argument against the electoral college. But I I don't think it's about different identities. I don't think it's about any of that. And I think you can have a nationalized politics, but the question is, where is the space in which that politics occurs? And I think this is critical. The space for our politics, it, it is not a national electorate, the formal space, the, the institutional space created by the Constitution. No one in the Constitution is elected by a national electorate. No institution represents a national electorate, if you will. And so we would have to create that space if we move beyond the Electoral College. I'm not saying it shouldn't be done. What I'm saying is this is a very important concept that often is glossed over. And what we're doing is we're recreating the American regime. And I don't say that to fearmonger. It's just an, it's a fact. And the question is, what are the implications that flow from that? And it may be good. It may be bad. But at the end of the day, we have to think about it in those terms, I think. Uh, right. I mean, uh, and you're hitting at a, at a fundamental reason that we're having a crisis in our politics is that we were set up as a, as a compound republic. Uh, with, with a strong dose of federalism, whether you like it or not, whether John Marshall likes it or not, whether James Madison likes it or not, we are a nationalized polity now. I mean, elections are fully national. People are not voting for local candidates anymore. They're voting for national parties. Uh, our political life is is incredibly nationalized, and and our institutions don't reflect that. And that's, I think, part of the crisis that we're having now in American politics, frankly. Well, so the big thing that, that jumps out at me here is is the role of race, right? That's really the thing that's waving from the corner in this debate. That's where when I say to the extent that people's state identity is meaningful, that actually undermines what we currently understand as democratic legitimacy. And there's lots of, you know, we can look back um, for interested listeners who might want to read more about this. William Riker has some interesting things about federalism and race. What? I love William Riker. Fantastic. See, so to move this into the 21st century, basically what we see is the Electoral College represents a lot of empty space. And who lives in empty space? White people. Um, and who lives in cities <laughs> which are not formally represented in the way that I would have said farmers, that, that but states are. 
Well, I was. Who are also say, predominantly white. Yeah, I was say white people. <laughs> I mean, there are people of color in rural areas for sure, but a lot of, particularly the sparsely populated states in the north, um, are not very diverse. And we're dealing with a system that was designed to protect one set of ideas about race. And we now live in a world with a very different set of ideas about race. And I think if you were to, to sit down and do the math, which someone probably has, that white people living in, in the Dakotas or places like that have a lot more kind of their votes to, to use Lee's formulation have a lot more weight than if you are a person of color, if you're an African-American or Latino voter living in, in Dallas or living in Milwaukee or living in New York City or any of those places. Well, you've just made a case against the Senate. Well, look, I think too often, especially on the right, conservatives may minimize race. And I, and I don't think that's helpful. And I, and I think that it's something that they need to grapple with more. But when I think about the Electoral College, when I think about the institutional structure of our regime, it seems to me that it, it, it's not to protect people, per se. It's meant to ensure that no one rules. And this is something that we forget. No one's supposed to rule in America. The minority's not supposed to rule and the majority's not supposed to rule. And for that to happen, you have to kind of suspend the Polybian cycle. Polybius writes about how everything kind of descends. You have a, a monarchy and it descends into an oligarchy and so on and so on and then repeats itself. And it's very unstable. Could you back up? Did you have to disrupt the what cycle? The Polybian cycle. You don't think about the Polybian cycle every morning when you wake so up. Is that like the Krebs cycle? <laughs> I think about how to make coffee in the morning. So this, you know, up. Madison, when he looks back and he looks at all these ancient republics, he's doing it because he's trying to crack the code. He's trying to figure out why are they so unstable? They're very violent. They're very, and they're prone to disruption and they eventually descend into anarchy and then tyranny. And He's like, how do we stop that? And his answer was, let's create a space where politics can occur that no one can dominate. And the key to that is not the Electoral College. I'm not going to say that. I think the key to that is to ensure that there is no national sovereign who can then step into the shoes of the sovereign of the king. This is why our revolution was much different than France. Much different. It went differently. And precisely for this reason. And I think that these, these are the things that I mean when we get into the reforms. If we create a national sovereign which we have not had in America, we have a bunch of sovereigns and the people organized, as Marshall says, in their states, then the question is, what are the implications? What are the follow-on implications from that? So I think the, the sort of creating a national sovereignship has sailed. And I'm not sure if it's sailed... But not in a legal or formal sense. Well, I mean... A national sovereign cannot, cannot eradicate the Constitution. A national sovereign cannot... Um, pass laws without getting it through the Senate, without getting the president to sign it, without getting it through the House. The national sovereign can't overwhelm the Supreme Court because there is no national sovereign. We don't have the Rousseauistic general will here. And that's why we still have the system that we established in 1787 with some very important changes along the way, admittedly. And that may be a bad thing to some people, but that's why we still have it. We've been spared from this kind of the tyranny of majority rule while embracing the, the, the common sense of majority decision in our country, unlike Europe. So here's the thing, though. In a formal sense, sure, but in the, in the real sense where the presidency is the focal point of the, of the republic, right? And the president has capacity to shape what – we're seeing this a lot with Trump and Republicans, right? has a lot of capacity to shape what partisanship means, to shape the incentives – of members of Congress. So we have a very presidency-centric country. And that I don't think that's great, but I think that that development is very much at odds with 
the possibility that the person in that role then can be selected by fewer votes. And that's an institutional mismatch that we're dealing with. And you layer on top of that the inequities that exist in the electorate that are baked into that selection system. I think it gets to this point about delegitimization, which I think Leah sort of talked about. And I'm interested in bringing those two ideas into conversation, where you're talking about how to have a successful democratization in an 18th century context. And Lee is kind of talking about how to how to legitimize politics with the very real, you know, no less deep problems we have in the 21st century. Well, I mean, take James's point. I mean, you might say that delegitimization is actually a good thing because then nobody feels like they have a mandate to, to rule and that what you want is actually gridlock because you should be very skeptical of government doing anything. And that's one one way to, to, to view our institutions. Separations of powers is good because in preventing a lot from happening, it also prevents a bunch of, of overreactions, i.e. The, the French Revolution from happening. Uh, but, but the problem is we have expectations that something's going to happen. And our politics is fundamentally majoritarian. And campaigns are all about making big promises. And then our institutions are set up not to deliver those promises. So people get distrustful and angry. And and we're in this point where trust in our institutions is is scraping like bottom of the barrel lows. And and that's I think really bad for a political system. And the Electoral College is is part of that. It's not all of that. No, I think that's fair and, and uh, fair points all around. And the lack of public trust in our institutions is a very real problem. And I'm not sure the Electoral College is the cause. I think it, it, it's a contributing factor for many people. But it's that our institutions aren't working as they should, particularly Congress. They increasingly defer to the president. They defer to the Supreme Court. They're not doing the job that they're supposed to do. And, and the question is, is it should magnifying and amplifying that tendency make it better by having a national electorate or will it make it worse? And my guess is it'll probably make it worse. And, I, and I'm not saying this because I'm a small government conservative and I want to limit government. The framers wanted an energetic government, but they didn't want a government so energetic that it could just do whatever it wanted in the very French sense and after their revolution. And so they tried to establish an institutional structure grafted on top of our extended republic that would allow for an energetic republic while also limiting that government or ensuring that that government doesn't get outside of the bounds that they wanted. And that's that space that they created. And it's, to my knowledge, the best thing that they've that anybody in human history has done in terms of government. Now we it could it definitely could have been better and it's gotten better and we're always going to be making it better. But the question is where do we make that better? And the, I argue that we make that better in that space of politics and for that not to be destroyed, we need to make sure that there's not a national sovereign who can come in and do whatever that person or a group of people or all the people want to do. And you have to secure the rights of the minority. And the only way to do that is to prevent any one group of people from ruling. That's the point. No one rules in America. There is no ruler. That goes for the national majority as well. So I want to flip, like, I want to move past this a little bit and flip to some kind of imagine what would happen if. So imagine for a moment that we adopt something like the um, the national popular vote or we get rid of the electoral college altogether. Um, I mean, the national popular vote compact. How would presidential campaigns be different, do you think? Well, I, I think they would be much more based in social media. Do I need to get an Instagram account? Yes, yes, yes. Is, is it just pictures? President? Yeah, just pictures, yeah. Can yeah, I, I comment on politics with authority if I don't have one? No. 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 No, only in this space. Okay, this, is, this is a safe space. Only but, with people, yeah, over 40. So maybe on the next episode we can yeah. sign me up. That sounds good. Yeah, we'll we'll do our next. Our next open will be we're getting James an Instagram account. I, um, I mean, it will it will become even 
celebrity based, I think. Once but, I get on the But yes, I mean, maybe that's right. that's already the train that we're on. I, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to plug for something I haven't written yet. I'm going to try to write about this in the next couple weeks. But right, let's do, workshop it. Uh, <laughs> but exactly. So, but okay. So you think one person, one vote. The person who gets the most votes should be president. I agree with you about that. But you think that that would make campaigns happen more on Instagram and Twitter than they already do. And that does not seem like a positive development. Sell me on that development. Yeah, I don't know if it's a positive development. It may not, you know. I'd like it. Give, I mean, this is, you know, the thing. You want to have more people participating in politics. You have more conflict, more disagreement. And out of that, you get ideas that bubble up to the surface. It may not always be pretty. And I've, you know, I subscribe to Federalist 10. I, you know, the more people participating, the, the better this is, the whole thing. And if the, the oh, fewer people participating, the worse it is. So more factions participating. Well, <laughs> factions, people, you know, people make up factions. My reservations about social media are not that I don't like social media. I think probably many of our listeners are, are probably aware that I love it. But um, it doesn't really lend itself to actually building factions. Like I think that having, you know, having actual groups of people who are accountable to one another in a, in a particular kind of way instead of these sort of diffuse cross-national relationships. That's what uh, – those are my reservations about national politics is that – if you're operating in the realm of ideas that are exchanged over social media, it's not those ideas are shallow, which is often the critique. I don't think that's always the case. Um, This is interesting because you don't, I guess the argument would be if you're on social media, you don't have to get out. You don't have to participate with your fellow peers. I mean, you are in a way, but you're doing it from the comfort of your own home. You're not interacting in the same way. And so there may be some follow on effects there. You can venue shop for people who agree with you. Yeah. Um, I venue shop for people who disagree. Right. I find agreement just boring. That's yeah. But that's weird. Right. Whereas (laughs) in a more face to face, in in a place where you're more obligated to make kind of collective decisions, you might have to work with people who agree with you in some things, but not other things. Anyway, I cut you off, Lee. I think you were talking about how you think presidential campaigns would differ. Oh yeah, well that's that's how I think I think I said my piece here. Will we get more ads though in in states that aren't considered swing states? Because probably ads are just awful. Yeah, well, and can you imagine the people in? I mean, I could see a backlash. There could be a new group that's that's created. That's you know to to reverse the reform because we don't like these ads. Although, <laughs> well, do people it hasn't still, happened yet in, in Virginia or Ohio. Yeah, people just don't watch TV anymore. Yeah, yeah I think that's All probably right. Any, Anybody who's listening to this podcast probably is not watching the, TV so much anymore. The ads will find you on Netflix or Hulu or wherever, whatever. Not I, on I, PBS. I, well, la-di-da. I live in Wisconsin, and 2012 was like wall-to-wall. We had to unplug our landline. So if you want you know, notes from a swing state, that's true. I mean, maybe it would kind of diffuse a little bit, right? Like. Where you wouldn't spend all your money in Wisconsin trying to get the winner take all, whatever you would you would spend your money, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. Maybe we try to turn out some people in Birmingham, or maybe you know, if you're conservative, you might spend money in rural California. But I think this is an interesting point because, and you see this in other areas too, in terms of you know, absentee ballots, no excuse absentee balloting, early voting. Typically, the parties, the party machinery, the organizations, they're not always fond of these things because they've got a model, they've got a formula, and they know how to, and they do their, mm-hmm. and it's, it becomes harder to, to apply that like late-breaking, get-out-the-vote operation, ad rush with the parties to win these elections. And so if you do these kinds of reforms, what's going to happen is that the parties are going to have to change how they go at winning presidential elections. And that isn't 
doesn't mean that they don't want to, but I think that it is a, a concern that many people who are involved in this stuff professionally are, are going to have, and that may explain some of the pushback you see. I think another interesting concept is today we often think of politics as, as in terms of progress and not in forms of government. And when we think of it in terms of progress, we typically rationalize um, supporting institutions and structures that, that give us what we want one minute. But then the next minute, when they no longer give us what we want, we say, well, that's bad. Let's get rid of it. And I think increasingly you'll see this. And right now it looks like the Republican Party is, in, you know, is not benefiting from uh, getting rid of the Electoral College. And so you have a lot of Republicans saying it's absolutely critical. If the situation were to shift, I have no doubt in my mind that many Republicans would say, this is ridiculous. We need to get rid of the Electoral College. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind because people oftentimes approach this in terms of a progress. Again, not focusing on the form. Well, I, I think another thing that would change if you got rid of the Electoral College is voting turnout would, would go up because if the parties are campaigning nationwide – and your vote matters no matter where you live. You have a lot more incentive to vote. I mean, there are a lot of people, I mean, first of all, you know, voting. The chance, as we discussed at the beginning, I mean, the chance that your vote matters is, uh, is, is, is pretty much nil. Uh, but still, if you're in a swing state, your vote might matter. Uh, whereas other vote, if you're in California or Alabama, you know your vote's not going to matter for president. But now, national popular vote, your, your vote matters. This, you know, this, I can see why Republicans would not want this to happen because the the constituencies that would tend to vote at the lower rates are are Democrats, and not only would it help Democrats because the electoral college has seems to to benefit Republicans now by overweighting certain states, uh, but also it would increase turnout, which I think Republicans seem to think would hurt them given their their current. Yeah, and I think it would uh, also strategies. increase the um the the importance of primaries because let's not kid ourselves if you're a voter. Chances are you have a better chance at impacting the outcome by participating in a primary. And most of the people in this town don't like primaries and they see them as disruptive or chaotic. A lot of people around the country don't like primaries, but it seems like this might go in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I have mixed feelings about this. Lee, your contention that this would increase voter turnout is pretty evidence based. So we see evidence that competitive elections definitely drive voter turnout, whether that's because of mobilization or because it shifts people's calculus about um their likelihood of influencing the, the outcome. I'm not sure which mechanism is true. And also there's some interesting comparative research that suggests that the directness with which you can translate your vote into what the government looks like influences voter turnout. So countries where you vote and then what the assembled government looks like is very different actually have lower turnout than those that where it's more it's a more direct process. And so having a more direct process for president, I think, would have some at least marginal effects. Um, can, but, I raise, can I ask Lee a question? Yeah. So you like Congress, right? You're a Congress person. <laughs> you like, I like the idea of Congress. You're, like, you're, the, of you're Cong one of the 13% of people that are like, I think Congress is I mean, not great like, job. I, 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 you no, think I about it. Yeah, I, 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 I like the idea of baseball and cooking. Yeah, it sounds like fun <laughs> things to do. In, in previous life, I may have gone to a baseball game. That's yeah, how I feel about kids. running. Yeah, I like, you like the idea. I, mean, I think we all like the idea I think we ought to have a Congress. But so here's the question for you, Lee. If if we go to a nationwide popular vote if, and we get rid of the Electoral College, and so the president is elected by a national majority, what does that do to the relationship between the president and the Congress? Does it make it worse than it is now? Does Congress defer more to the president or does it make it different? Does it, make it, does it help Congress reassert itself? Because that seems to be a major problem that we have right now is Congress won't reassert itself. I mean, the, the reason that Congress 
won't reassert itself uh, has to do with with the with, with the polarization of our politics, right? Right. I mean, that but if you have a president who has been elected by a national majority for the first time in American history that can truly say. I represent America for the first time in American well, history. That's not, that's, does that, does that destabilize? Well, wait, 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 wait. The, uh, the relationship between Congress and the well, president. Well, I, I'm going to defer here to, to Julia, who wrote a book on, on, on mandates. <laughs> uh, I did. And I mean, my, my assessment of this is that mandate claiming doesn't really have a lot to do with the actual election. It has, no. it has a lot to do, I mean, it has to do with shifting norms around elections and it also has to do with polarization and expansion of presidential power. So presidents draw on electoral legitimacy when basically when they need right. some source of, of legitimacy. And right now, I think that's clearly the case. I see the reservation that you're expressing, that this fundamentally shifts the relationship between between the president and Congress because it gives the president this sort of source. I mean, what you're really describing is Andrew Jackson in the 1830s, where he sort of decided after the election of 1832 that that was the case. Jackson. Um, that was literally the creepiest thing that's ever happened. Um, so where did that so come from? So we're going to be doing a so, field uh, recording of uh, the Hermitage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go on a long thing, and I need everyone to let me do that. So first of all, I think Jackson illustrates this, but so do many subsequent presidents, which is the system you're describing where the president claims to have a national constituency that, make, that gives them a sort of special layer um, of representativeness that Congress does not enjoy. That system already exists. Our institutions just don't match it. And so every now, you know, it's happened now twice in the lifetime of, of me and many people listening to the podcast. Um, I guess there aren't that many people alive who remember 1876, or 1888. But, you know, that system already exists. And so periodically there's an actual distortion of what happens of the of the popular vote and then who gets to be president but that you know the system in which people see the president as a mouthpiece of of the whole country and where the president has all the symbolic and partisan power is already there. And I think this really gets to a fundamental difference between the two viewpoints the two of you are articulating. Where James a lot of what you're saying reflects the perspective that the institutions then are going to shape the politics. And that if we have, you know, if we have a national election, then we have to update our polity to match that. And Lee, I think what you're saying is we have these norms about how democracy works. We need to update our institutions to match them. And those are kind of two fundamentally views, different views. I think those can both happen, but I think it's hard to prioritize them both at the same time. So either when we're talking about the Electoral College, we're talking about updating our institutions to match society, or we're talking about fundamentally shifting our institutions and thus fundamentally expecting some kind of resultant shift in our politics. And I think that's, to me, that's the critical distinction. Oh, but, but the politics that we have has actually evolved within these institutions, right? I, I mean, we have a national polity and national politics despite having the Electoral College. Right, but so, it's constrained in a certain way. Well, how, how is it constrained? How would it be even more nationalized? I mean, I, I can't imagine our politics being much more nationalized than it is now. Imagine yeah, Jackson with a imagine Jackson with an actual popular majority behind him. Well, versus, didn't he have a national popular majority behind but him? It, but as I, as existing within the states in the electoral college, and and you had this institutional structure. Imagine the. I agree with you, Julia. But imagine these these claims to mandates with with a little bit more legitimacy behind them. It does turn out, I think, differently. And I think you look at what happened in France. I'm not saying that it's going to be like bloodshed in the streets. Again, that's not what I'm saying. But if you look at what happened in France after their revolution and you look at what happened in America after ours, 
The instability in France matches the instability that Madison saw in the ancient republics. And that's what they wanted to avoid. I think that's what we want to avoid. Now, the question is, how do we do that while updating the system that we have to the 21st century realities that we, that we face? That's the key thing. But in doing that, we have to keep in mind that there are unintended consequences. And it wasn't to ensure minorities get to rule and all this other stuff. It was to avoid the instability that comes from having a national sovereign. Well, first of all, almost every president who's been elected has won a popular majority. It's only happened five times. So uh, popular plurality. Plurality, uh, right. You know, so are, are you saying we should go back to the original design of the Electoral College? No, I'm not, I'm not sure what I'm saying. What I'm trying to do is, because I'm open to reforms, what I think I'm trying to do is articulate the different reforms. And this is the one thing that isn't often articulated. You know, conservatives will say, well, we got to prevent majorities from ruling and, and we have to safeguard the republic. Well, that doesn't tell us much. What we need to do is safeguard that space. And, and we need to allow for the peoples to, to basically participate in politics and make decisions on a majority vote basis. That's ultimately, I think, what we need to do. And the way to do that is to, is to safeguard and bolster that space. And, and I'm not, and look, I'm, I'm all for questioning the Electoral College. I think too often, again, amongst conservatives, you find people that say, well, we can't even question this. And people who question it is bad. No, it's not bad. We can question all of this stuff. But I think in questioning, we need to fully probe all of these different implications and then see what the secondary effects are. Okay, so I want to get us kind of wrapping up here, and I want to wrap us up with this. our final question. This is just speculation. Do we think we're going to see another 2016-like result again where specifically what I'm talking about is a serious reversal? One of the arguments I, I've constantly thought was you know, very compelling about the Electoral College is it's never really overturned a clear result, right? 1876, the election of 1876 was just a mess. The election of 1888 was very close. The election of 2000 was very close. 2016, close. Not that close. Hillary Clinton was the clear winner of the popular vote. And yet Donald Trump is president, is also a very contentious and polarized election between very different viewpoints. Do we think we're going to see this again? And if so, what are the what are the implications of that? Yeah, I, I think there's, given the, the where the country is and, and, and the strengths of the two parties, I think there's a real chance that we'll, we will see another reversal. And I think we're at a time when the stakes of politics feel incredibly high and we could have a, a real legitimacy crisis on our hands. I, I think people are, are, are really energized about politics in a way and, and that they haven't been in this country for a while. And, you know, if Trump wins in, in 2020, despite losing the popular vote by even more, I mean, wh what are Democrats going to do? And I think I think that's fair. And I think that it does look like the Electoral College is increasingly straining, if you will. And, and we may have more of these outcomes. And I think that really underscores the need to think through these issues and to think through how best to reform, if we should reform. And if we do, what are the different ways about going about it? Because at the end of the day, the beauty of America is that everybody's a ruler and everybody's ruled. If we have a, a majority that can rule, we go back to the states prior to the Constitution where minority rights were threatened left and right. And I don't think anybody on the left or the right wants to see that right now. And so I think the challenge that we face is how do we get past these uh, you know, kind of caricatures of either side and try to get to these underlying issues and actually 
try to understand where the other side is coming from. Because right now, it's the Electoral College debate is being subsumed into this larger polarized partisan debate that we have. And that gets back to we all think about progress. And anything that supports our progress is good. And anything that opposes it is bad. And then it flips whenever uh, we're in a different position. And that's just not a healthy way and a very stable way to to run a polity. Now, that's a function of our winner-take-all system, of course, which... (laughs) That's, that's the real problem. <laughs> we're, we're, yeah, we're right. We're right back there again. I guess I want to just add to that, though, that I don't think we can really talk about the process issues without talking through through the substance. And that's where I think some of these institutional reforms that we're going to talk about, you know, as we wrap up this episode and then move into um, our next set of questions we're going to explore in future episodes is that. You know, it's one thing to talk about institutions in the abstract, but it's also true that any reforms we talk about are happening in a context of great income inequality. They're happening, being layered over our, our racial history, our gender history, our, our religion history, our immigration history. And I think that really, you know, that really matters. And so how to make fair institutional calls when clearly people are not all operating in equal conditions and where clearly this will happen in a, in a reality with a lot of power politics going on, I think makes this an especially challenging endeavor. Thanks for listening to this episode of Politics in Question. To learn more, you can find our Twitter accounts and website links in the show notes. Anything we've cited or referred to will be there as well. Politics in Question is a joint product of New America and the R Street Institute. Elena Soros is our producer and a research associate in the Political Reform Program at New America. Griffin Tanner is our audio engineer, and Jason Stewart is our production manager. Thanks for joining us.